is your host, uh, Brian Betts, Faith Over Breakfast. I am at home in bed, hopefully, um, and I'm not with you guys today, but it's been really great. It's been really great to get some rest. Anyway, actually, this is this is Andy Littleton with hey, Pastor, Pastor Eric Seepin, and this is Faith Over Breakfast. We're at Exo Coffee in Tucson, Arizona. I've got my traditional Whiskey Town biscuit. Eric's latte is almost gone. He's getting a phone call. He's yeah, gonna it's, ignore it's that. just from Mark Crawford. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Yeah, it's just an elder of the church. It's, yeah. He can wait. He can wait. Um, yeah, we, uh, Brian, you okay out there, buddy? We don't know where you're at. We, uh, we, what we're hoping is that you got off a long night's work and just fell asleep comfy in your bed. Yeah. Hopefully not while driving. Hopefully not while, while driving. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, we're here at XO. And, um... Yeah, there's, I don't know, it's been a week full of interesting interesting stuff. There's We had, we had kind of discussed, we've been meaning to talk about, yeah, talk about gender, um, these things that are, you know, such, such big issues. It's like, well, so last week when we were going to talk about it, I was admitting I kind of didn't want to because... Right, well, you've yeah. kind of said that on every podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to talk about this. But it, it just seems to me like, oh, everybody's just blown off all kinds of steam about this, and it's like the big thing, and what am I going to just add to the, add another drop to the ocean on this topic? It, you know, and then and then this week it blew up even more. There's even more about it, and so, hey, we decided to talk about it. Here we are. Yeah, here we are talking about it. Yeah, and you just preached on it. I preach on sexuality, yeah. Sexuality. Yeah, you can go listen to it on the website. Yeah. I preached about anger, which we, we discussed a few weeks back. So yeah. that was, that's what I just did on Sunday. But, yeah, what, I guess let's just jump into this. I mean, what do you... So here's... So the Nashville statement came out. We've yes. got... And so all the other... I'm just going to go ahead and talk about the other podcasts out there that we you know think we hold a candle to and we don't right because we dropped five listeners so we're down to 83 yeah which i found out that the stat actually means that in a 90-day period our podcast will be listened to each podcast we listen to approximately 83 times okay if it's on on the internet for 90 days oh okay 83 listens that's how it works yeah that's how they anyway that's where we're at yeah, so anyway, I mean, so the, you know, the Nashville statement comes out, and pretty promptly the liturgists put out a counter-statement, the liturgist statement. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even know that. Yeah, they did, and um, I've read them, and then, you know, Bad Christian uh, talked about it. I found their response to it very interesting, um, because I, I've listened to some other things they've said on the topic, and um, I actually didn't finish that whole podcast. I was listening to it yesterday, but, but I think I got the majority of their talking about this. So I'm kind of, I'm trying to listen. I've read Washington Post. I've read Al Mohler, um, who was one of the crafters of it. I've read Rosaria Butterfield. We've had an elder level discussion. I had a long discussion with a church attendee after church. So this has been, I've been swimming in it. Yeah, you've been swimming in it, so maybe you can talk about it a little bit better than I can because... Um, well, maybe it's good you haven't. Been I've only perused it, and when I do, just maybe on a side note, listen to people like that Christian more than the liturgist. Sometimes I'm like, wow, there's, there's. We really enjoy listening to shared ignorance, mm. um, and mm. and I'm 
part of that, and that's yeah. not, I just like <laughs> to spout my opinions right. when I'm not as well informed. Yeah. Um, well, and sometimes we make these life choices out of not being well informed, and that that kind of yeah. That's a, maybe that's a whole other podcast. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, my an interesting thing. I so the the liturgist folks seem very very like up in arms about this Nashville statement. But then they make a counter statement, making all these claims of truth. It's like, okay, you drew a line in the sand. We're going to draw one. We're going to gather our people over here. You gather your people over here. Um, so, and then I'm going. So, what's the difference? You know what? And and then the interesting thing is there are all these, you know, counter claims that are that say because God is this way, therefore this. Mm-hmm. You know, which is exactly what the Nashville statement folks are doing. Right. Um, and. The only the difference is, for the Nashville statement folks, I understand their presuppositions by which they come to their conclusions. Mm-hmm. At the liturgists, from listening to them, I, I don't understand. They're, I, I see some of the conclusions they come to, and I go, how did you get that from, your, presuppositions? Sure. So I, you know, I don't know, but that's a way bigger. Now we're not even on gender. Now we're on. The, the rules of philosophy. We should have the philosopher back on. Right, we really should uh, talk about those things. Uh, anyway, I, sorry, I mean, shared ignorance. What were you? Well, no, I mean, I think that like one of the things that doesn't get talked about, and probably maybe where people react to the Nashville statement, is that, and I suspect this is where Mission Church comes from too, it's where the village comes from, and is that theology is relational. Mm-hmm. And when you put right. a statement out and you put people who have big names with whom you have perceived relationship with, that now yeah. you have to agree or disagree with them publicly, but you don't have any discourse or any power to influence them. Yeah, you don't know these people. Yeah, so it's a weird place that we live in in that context. Because, I mean, when we talk about gender, we want to talk about how the church is going to deal with anything, like at the village, we, we're doing the work in the community. Yeah. And so it's relational. And so even when we talk about gender, everybody at the village can tell you my story and my understanding of gender, not just from Scripture, but from my own narrative. I can't tell you, you know, Matt Chandler's story and his understanding of gender. Um, I can tell a little bit if I go listen to his sermons, but mostly it's about more about right and wrong and making larger, more direct statements to larger and and I don't know. If, I don't know that gender's been his thing. Yeah. I mean, somebody that I talked to at church, they were saying they would, they had become. I, I preached in anger, and they said I am angry about this. You know, it was actually it was a really great conversation, really helpful, and because we know we're getting to know each other, and it was personal, um, and it was really helpful for me. But part of what I had to confess to him is I said, you know, you, you know, I don't know your story in relation to this thing, this this idea of gender um, for me this hasn't been the big struggle right um, you could bring up there are other issues that would really you know, get me more sideways right um, but then there's some people in the Nashville statement like like uh, Rosaria Butterfield who's written a lot but this is a big I mean she calls her conversion to Christianity an absolute train wreck something she doesn't understand and she came from you know very very I mean professor of queer theory at Syracuse right and so she's um, you know when I read her name on there I've read her books right and I go okay I know her story so that's I have a different reaction to her on there than Matt Chandler 
or somebody like that. You know? Right. Because I know she must have put a lot of thought. Right. Yeah. Right. And and there's a perceived that when you make statements like that, there's obviously a perceived attack. Yeah. You're, you're defending yourself. Um, I mean, and I think that Christians in general, uh, not necessarily, maybe in a violent way, I don't know, but we, we are more in the news, for instance, Houston and Joel Osteen, and there's a, there's a, <laughs> right. we're being analyzed and we're being, yeah. are you acting like a Christian? Aren't you acting right. like a Christian? And for me, it's, to be honest, I, I like Paul's conversation in First Thessalonians about living a quiet life. Yeah, and not yeah. calling attention to yourself. There's something about that of, of mm. really allowing your actions to show that you're following Jesus. Uh, and, and I think, like you know, with Joel Osteen, you have the problem of his actions show a lot of money, regardless of if he let people in or out of their right. building. It's it's a previous yeah, way a of whole, being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's there's years of a precedent set yes. by this guy. And, and we've, we've tried, I mean, we've taken advantage of our celebrity. I don't know if that's what we're called to do as Christians. Uh, and that's... Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, on a, I read an article about a guy that just died. And he was a Christian. And he worked in the mainstream news media. And I can't even remember his name. It was, it was a name, I was like, I've oh, never heard of him. Um... But the big thing about him was that he brought deep Christian thinkers and introduced them to, like, the New York Times and Washington Post and said, you should interview this guy on the topic instead of finding the loudest, weirdest Christian out there. You should talk to him. Right. That was his whole thing is he just did that. Now, how do you get into a position like that? Do you get in there by always spouting your opinions on things and always making a big scene and always disagreeing with everybody? I doubt it. I mean, for him to be that trusted by folks on the New York Times and Washington Post, they must have understood that he was a Christian. But they must have also understood that he cared about them and he wasn't, like, there to be in a big fight. Right. And, and it turns out over his lifespan, what this article was saying is that he presented meaningful, thoughtful Christian thought to the public... In, in a way that you know, we don't even know <clears throat> very quietly so it's, it's, not, it's a hybrid of what you're saying right it's Christian deep Christian people were speaking right but not just making noise I guess right the, and I think being part of the dialogue I mean you have Paul in front of ruler after ruler oh yeah it's not like he wasn't in the public dialogue you have him in Ephesus and you know you've got places of large crowds and, and he's on Mars Hill but he he chose his com- combative words for a purpose and they were well thought out mm-hmm. and they weren't just shot like a shotgun into the public sphere to see what would happen and then yeah. let's pick it all up after that right? And, and I think that's kind of and I'm not saying the Nashville statement is that but I do think Christians are feeling like they're under attack and they need to make a statement about uh, marriage, and they need to make a statement about gender, and they need to make a statement about truth. And sometimes yeah. I think we're a little afraid to allow the cognitive dissonance to be present in our culture and the plurality of ideas. We're afraid that our right. ideas will not hold traction or yeah. be accepted unless we make a unified statement. I don't know. I mean that. Well, and it's and it's interesting because you know there's a lot of questions like what was this for? And yeah. That was part of what 
the discussion that I was having at church was about. You know, so on, on one on one side of the coin, I understand what some friends of mine are saying, where they're saying like, "Okay, look, I almost, you know, I could probably get along with this statement, but why make it? Why put up walls? Why make it harder for people to engage with with the faith?" And I understand that, you know, and, and in a way, like maybe that's part of what you're saying right now, right. you know, because it, you know, if if these conversations are best had relationally and deeply and over the years, then just making these public you know, statements just seems to undo that and right. just make that unpo- impossible. So there's that. But then on the flip side, I was telling the guy yesterday, you know, I, I come from a, you know, I studied some church history and theology. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything you're aware of, if you've studied that, which a lot of the crafters of the national statement are coming from that mm-hmm. background too, you know that the church has constantly been making statements. Yes, it has. Like, over and over and over. And they, you know, in in some regard, I mean, we look back to some of those and help clarify, like, both of our churches ask you to believe the Apostles' Creed. Right. What was that statement? They yes. were clarifying. <laughs> yeah, it was very <laughs> This clarifying. is Christianity. This over here is, is, is different. And, that, and then they started to realize we need to get a little more specific. And so sure. at some point, it's like, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity is essential. Right. You know, we need to work this out. And some people didn't think it was. And right. But when some a certain group said, no, we think it's essential, some other people went, okay, then we're not a part of this. Um, time, study, you know, wisdom has shown it was essential for Christianity. Um, you know, so you could go back to those people and say, you shouldn't have clarified the Trinity. I, you know, it, it's... But part of me is like, yeah, I don't know, it... It, why are we and then I was asking this guy I said why are we so why are we so mad when someone does clarify something they believe too that's interesting you know why why couldn't we both clarify something we believe and sit down to coffee and chit chat about why we disagree right why is it that we have to get mad and then disassociate with this person or blast them on the internet it, from some sort of safe distance where we can't, where we don't actually have to look them in the eye. What's up with that? I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good question. I, I think my when you go back to the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, um, Athanasian Creed, they they obviously have different. They came at different points in um, popularity of Christianity. So, yeah. so the Apostles' Creed uh, is very different than the Nicene Creed yeah. and, and forward in, in the sense of. When you get to the Nashville statement, you're talking about Christianity still holds a huge seat in power, mm-hmm. and uh, so so it's making a statement again to go back to what we were talking about. It's making a statement in power. I don't think we shouldn't make the statement. I'm just wondering if, in an age where I think there's a lot of ignorance, we need to help people understand why we're making the statement and what's underneath that statement. One of the interesting things yeah. that the village. That I hear a lot from people who are Christians who then come to the village is, well, I didn't really know anything about sin. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that that's the like. Yeah. I think I think we have to go back to, and it's not a Puritan idea, but it definitely is a Puritan idea of sin, and that there is original sin. Yeah. And that that distorts us. That's right. not a choice. Like I didn't choose. Yeah. The distorting yes. factors, and those are things we wrestle with, and how we respond to that distortion. <clears throat> you know, and then there's a distracting sin, which is actual sin. Yeah. 
and that's the sin that we choose and have to confess and and we wrestle with and then there is and I never remember the third how they talk about it but it's a devouring sin a sin that I hold secret I nurture I plan out I keep and these are the things that affect my sexuality and my gender and my understanding of my marriage and my understanding of you know going too fast in the speed limit right right you know these are these are the things that are make uh, underlying this and how and that's very complex there's a complexity that but we don't that's where the statement comes from I mean they're making statements on top of that idea oh yeah right and if you read somebody like Rosaria Butterfield like if you read her books you'll she'll she'll come to you and she'll say like look like my my gender um feelings were the very it was like the top of the dandelion and if you tried to only address that like just how I felt about my gender you just sort of clipped the top of the dandelion off and she she ends up saying like I I had a it was pride and unbelief is what she'll call it for herself sure and then she'll call the fact that she you know that belief came to her an absolute shocking miracle that had nothing to do with herself and she'll say that like then what it was is it didn't open up like a discussion with her just about gender it was about everything it was like my whole life I like I either owe everything to God my creator or not yeah and and then you know that's something that I've in the past listening to both actually both bad Christian and liturgists on the LGBT question and on gender um, the the key thing there when you really get into the discussion with them I've, I've noticed is is there you know some, it's something to do with like has God revealed himself concretely um, is scripture a thing mm-hmm. is it reliable because if it is then that then there's all this clarity within the scriptures that you have to deal with if it's not then that's not really a guiding a guiding reality and that's the difference between you know you know folks that are kind of riding certain cultural waves or not is their understanding of scripture and i kind of wish that they would really open with that and say hey you know here's you know, I'm, I'm not saying in a statement or whatever, but when they discuss it, to say, okay, so here's my this is the presuppositions. Here's my presupposition, right? Or um, at least lay out my your hermeneutics so I right. can understand what the heck yeah you're yeah. Where are you coming from? You're just making like that is one thing about yeah something like the national statement is when you read it, and that's that's why like in the discussion I was having with the guy like who is it written for? My my assumption when I look at it is this is written for people who would say I am. I am a committed historic Christian, right? Like, and this is just a a way of like restating some of that to those people. He assumed it was a statement out to the culture, mm-hmm. um, and it, and I thought, well, I suppose like if anything, it would be like if if someone wanted to come and understand what these folks believed about the issue, then sure, the culture's welcome to read it. But I. I think that they were clarifying for themselves and for others. Here's where we're at um, within our within our community, within yes. our churches. Um, so, so I think they assumed in their statement that the people reading it, or the people who would ultimately adopt it, had the same presuppositions that they do about scripture and, right. and about um, you know that there's a there's a creator God who purposed to reveal Himself in a very specific way, did so, and now we're accountable and responsible. 
to look to that revelation of who God is to know how we should live, how we could be saved, right. so on and so forth. But if you just if you just pick it up and you don't hold those core assumptions, which is a lot of folks in churches don't hold those core assumptions, right? Right. And and definitely not just out and about. If you just read it without understanding all that, you go, oh my gosh, these people are making just these blanket statements. Right, right. But I should say, like, on the flip side of that, on the in every nook and cranny of society, people are making all sorts of truth statements without presuppositions. Right. Like, all the time. Right. So I'm, even for those people who are just so grossly offended, I'm like, look at the log in your eye. Like, you do it too. Yeah, we, we all do we, it. Can we, we admit do. that? Right. Like, I yeah. do think that what, so like, and I prefer the new liturgist over bad Christians. Yeah, I, I do what, too, actually. what resonates with me about them, though I disagree often with them, is that they are relational. Yes. They come, and, and their theology is coming from friendship and from, yeah. like, a, a pain in the depth of the people, whereas I feel like, you know, bad Christians is, is full of anger and spite and shock value and those kinds of things. I don't know. Well, yeah. And the I mean, bad Christian guys, you know, they like the last podcast on this topic, they opened with a bunch of like sexually crass stuff. I would never want to grace the threshold of my daughter's ear. Right. And then they start talking about gender and I'm like, I, how am I going to trust you on gender? You just, right. You say things constantly that are just offensive, offensive yes. in this category. Mm-hmm. So do you really care or are you just, or is this helping your listener base? Yeah. I anyway. Yeah, sorry. no, I would agree with you. Um, it's yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say about that. Yeah. Past that. Um, yeah. I mean, I listen. I mean, here's the thing. Even I was listening to them on the way here, and they and this is something that I see as an underlying thread in culture now, in like anti-Christian, and that is that a younger part of the generation is starting to realize that oh, like the government actually protects churches. Mm-hmm. And so they're talking about tax exemption. What was funny to me is they had no idea why the government would give churches a tax exemption and why they would right. protect them and tell them that they don't have to report any of their money and all right. that kind of stuff. They were just clueless. They couldn't figure that out. And I was like, wow, American history classes have failed us right. in understanding yeah. the separation of church and state and all of the power issues that existed in, in Europe and how oh, this... Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah the, we, don't, we don't understand what happened when the... When the church and the state were were married, were married. No, yeah. we don't understand that. And so uh, yeah. they they don't appreciate. They they think, well, look, the church is just being not only is it it's being coddled by the state, it's uh, it's given all these advantages, it's corrupt, it's and it's an interesting, you know. But they don't know why those things are that way or right. the initial intention. And the work it would take to understand that would be so exhausting. Right, they might get tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what I was interested, like you uh, preached on anger. And yeah, I preached on anger two weeks before. Yeah. So we, we and we did a podcast on anger, and I was kind of curious, like you had just begun to start. What what right. what kind of was your what you how did you land the plane on anger? Like what was kind of the thing that you laid out for people to? Yeah, I uh, actually it's probably unbeknownst to most of my people, but I, I went away from my normal sermon outline. And, uh, oh, you, you shook it up a I little shook bit. Shook it up, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I really. It was it was interesting. It was my normal sermon outline lately has been that I've got a couple key things from the text. I tell you what they are, and then I explain them, and then I tie them into the gospel at the end. But this one, I went a little more like Andy Stanley ish, 
like oh. told, told personal stories, tied my personal stories to the community, applied the scripture to the concept, tied it to individuals, tied it back to the community through the gospel. So, um, but yeah, just I, I was highlighting you know times when I was angry, when I was justly angry, when I was unjustly angry, um, and when I was when I was angry and should have done something and when I was angry and shouldn't have done something basically and then and then worked out like a whole bunch of things that make us angry and a lot of that was the interesting thing is I mean we had people connect with that idea of I'm angry because of the Nashville statement and then other people's anger over other things and so I, I was trying to make it very broad and show that you were we're more angry than we think and it, and anger isn't just when we when we lash out, anger is this is this deep um, peace within us. And then and then I went into this whole section of of uh, saying God is angry, and here's why, which I know is like without. I mean, you'd have to go listen to the sermon to. In the context, it was interesting to me that nobody came up to me and said, "I can't believe you said God is angry." Like in the context, everybody was just going, "Uh huh, yep, absolutely, that makes total sense." Hmm. Um, and, and it does. I mean, it was like God's angry that hurricanes destroy communities. Um, that's not just okay. God's not just up, up looking down going, that's my will, no problem. Um, you know, God's angry that about racism, which is one of my personal you know, stories tied in with that. Um, God's angry that people are unfaithful to each other and to him. Um, you know, God's angry that we don't love people the way that we should and that we disregard people, that we don't pay people the right wages, that we, you know, and I, there was like just a long list of stuff that I think most people, I would assume, were able to click with a piece of it. And then, uh, and then talked about that idea of like, so be angry and do not sin. And then it's coming from Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 4 is referencing Psalm 4. And Psalm 4 is from when David was fleeing his son Absalom, who's trying to kill him. Right. So we looked at anger in the life of Absalom versus anger in the life of David. Absalom harbored it, stuffed it down, acted like it wasn't there, killed his brother, turned on his father, ends up dying by the... He's pierced, hanging from a tree um, in, in battle. Uh, David expresses his anger when his daughter is raped by her brother which is what Absalom pushed down yeah David expressed it dealt with it faced it called it what it was David was also angry at his son pursued him tried to stop him but wanted to would rather die than have him die so he he had a balance of love and justice Um, and he weeps when his son dies in battle Um, whereas somebody else the, the delivery person of the message was just excited about the justice of it you know may all your enemies die and david weeps and says oh absalom oh absalom you know my son my son and then um you know so kind of saying hey here's the two the two ways and then the conclusion was so how do you how do we ever have the power to be angry and not sin and that's that you need to be on the receiving end you need to understand that you actually deserve the anger of god in, in a number of ways but that you are loved deeply by God and offered grace. And we talked about you know, Jesus looking over Jerusalem, quoting David, but saying, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. Um, same, you know, it, like all the commentators say, he's, it's, it's, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. He's crying out for his children. 
Um, and then, you know, himself saying, I would rather die than you, and being pierced, hanged from a tree in our place. And so until, until you can see that, that the people that you're angry at aren't so different than you, and that the mercy that God has extended to you is extending to them, then you can acknowledge your anger, call it what it is, acknowledge that things are genuinely angering, yet not be vindictive, stuff it down, sin against people, but but love them as you pursue justice. Hmm. So there's the there's well, the was, synopsis. That was cool. I really like that. Yeah, yeah, I like your uh, your using the the Old Testament narrative to kind of illustrate. The, yeah, the two. That was a uh, that was really good. Yeah, it was. It uh, helps you kind of be in touch with it with with something that's tangible and yet biblical. There's a lot of story, personal and. And biblical story, which yeah. help rather than it just being this like statements of facts, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it was I was really thankful um, for those stories in my own life and in the Bible that were helpful. I sometimes it's hard to you come across a scripture and it's hard for me to to kind of know how to go at it. And yeah. this one, because there was just that this obvious reference to Psalm four and. Um, it was really nice. Like I, I enjoyed the study. I enjoyed going back and reading Psalm four and Second Samuel. And yeah, it sounds like you did. I did. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. sounds like you did that a lot. So cool. it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so you, on our on our gender topic, you, like, and you've mentioned that. I want to hear a little bit of your. Uh, can you share with us? Yeah, I can. Some of this. I, well, I can. And your own story. On that. Yeah, I can tell a little bit of my own story. I will tell you that one of the things that's really powerful to me and I talked about it in my sermon, in talking about gender, is to understand the Genesis narrative yeah. as when Adam and Eve are created and, in, and they're in God's image, the thing that they're reflecting is God. So who they're yeah. looking at is God. And to reflect God is a very vulnerable place because you're not in control. Yeah. And that's where we start, you know, yeah. to imitate God by creating image bearers and, the, and to begin to tell the world who God is. That's vulnerable because you don't get to define yourself. Yeah. yeah and really what the, what the enemy offers mm-hmm. is power. And, and offers us to look at ourselves and to reflect us. Yeah. And to be in control of what we're doing and reflecting. And so those two ideas, like when it comes to gender, like it's very important for me to understand, like for me to understand my own gender, understanding sexuality, to understand that there's a brokenness um, in that that you know that distortion of who I am. In order to to if I could take control of that distortion and say no, this is who I am because this is how I feel and this is how I was, um, then it's me looking in the mirror. Yeah. And and understanding sin is it's not the way it's supposed to be. Instead of just wrong, right, wrong, right. Understand that there's a way it's supposed to be, and I think it's a grace because God is saying there is a way it's supposed to be. But I understand that it's not the way it's yeah. supposed to be. Yeah. Right? And so I, I understand your experience. I understand that this is difficult. To it's vulnerable to look at me instead of look at you. Yeah. Like and that beginning there is really powerful for me because it's not God standing over us saying this is what male is and this is what female is. Um, and so that's kind of the context I understand things in. The other yeah. thing I understand context in is, you know, in Galatians, where it says, you know, in Galatians 3, where it's talking about there is no longer male or female, but, right. but that we're in Christ. 
that all he's saying there is like, look, guys, the mirror's changed. Like yeah. your male, female gender, that's not the core to who you are. Your your racial identity is not the core yeah. to who you are. Christ is. And yeah. So to define those things, you have to define them through Jesus. Right. And that's that's powerful. It's vulnerable and terrifying. So for me, like, I think people get surprised when they hear my story. But if you listen to my story, and I told the church this, every single one of my stories is about at least the painful transitions ones is that I moved a lot yes. and I'm always leaving somebody but it turns out that I'm always leaving this best friend and this best friend is always this guy yeah. and from little to you know all the way into my ninth grade year um, and there's just this intimacy that I would yeah. build with, with men or boys my friends and I would what, in reflection say I felt would fall in love with Right. so kind of the big thing that the story that I tell and is really a, a big part of my life was my freshman year we moved from North Carolina to Tucson and we moved into the apartment complex that my parents got married in and I was born in yeah. so it's like a restart for them <laughs> so they're depressed my yeah. dad's trying to figure out how to make a living and do all that my mom's trying to figure things out I'm depressed I'm a freshman going to a brand new high school terrified and my next door neighbor happens to be this guy named Ian. His dad is a visiting geology professor. He's going to be there for a year. He runs, I run. He loves soccer, I love soccer. He loves access and allies, I love access and allies. So we become quick friends. Yeah. And we're together all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, we just run all over the place. We, you know, I was playing basketball, he was on the track team. And so this, like, intimacy began to build. Yeah. Same intimacy that I was building with, you know, all the other. Yeah. kids but I, those weren't very sexual they were just emotional right. well yeah you're going through puberty I start having these experiences where I think about Ian in a way that it, where it's not just hey he's my best friend I want to hang out like I have this longing in my heart to be like I want more with this guy I don't know what right. that more is but I want an intimacy that, that has a sexuality to it it's not necessarily I don't remember having lots of sexual imaginations about it, but I right. certainly had a lot of yeah. sexual feelings about it. Like, yeah. like in the same way I, I... And it wasn't just... I wouldn't just have those about him. I mean, as, as a young man, I was having them about women. Like, I, my, my gender felt very fluid. Like, I didn't know who I was, and I felt weird in different positions. Like, yeah. if I was with him, I felt like I, I wanted that kind of intimacy, but then there was girls that I wanted intimacy with, and yeah. all that was really... Con- Using for me, and it started kind of a downward spiral for me. So in my sophomore year, I was super depressed, and now as I kind of reflect back on that, I begin to understand, you know, the kinds of bonds that I would make with men, the longings that I would have with them. Um, but there's something just that's that's broken in me. And it is the thing, and it's a burden that I bear and have to be careful with, and where the enemy steps in to 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 distort and to tempt and to speak lies into, and and so I mean I could go on and on about this process, but that moment for me has helped me as I work with people realize that like there is because it's not the way it's supposed to be in all of us. Like gender is on a spectrum. And we all are in different places in that. Sure. But God keeps calling us back to the way it's supposed to be, which is in Christ. Right. You know, and, and 
I think and I'm forgetting this now, but in Isaiah, uh, somewhere between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 50, <laughs> there's a spot where he talks about eunuchs. Yeah, right. And he talks about how they have a special place in the kingdom of God. Yeah, like and like that's a really powerful thing to me. And that no matter how you understand that, it's a statement of I understand and I love you. And if you're willing to obey my commands, I will honor you. Yeah, and that's that's a powerful thing that you know you don't get anywhere. Yeah. And so anyway, those that's a little bit. I mean, like that that relationship with Ian was definitely a very confusing <coughs> yeah. time in my life. And you know, and I've had other relationships like that. They never moved towards you know anything physical, but I certainly have lots and lots of uh, imaginations and thoughts oh, yeah. and, and how would this happen and what will we do and where we go and like what would I do if I decide to go here. Right. Um, right. Because it was a very... The feeling and the experience was not a choice. Right. To follow through on those things was a definite choice that I contemplated a lot. Right. You know, especially, you know, when I felt lonely and depressed and like... And it was a place where I could find comfort and... Yeah. and hope so yeah that's a little bit of where my story is in that process yeah absolutely I mean I I, I relate to that in a different way um, but you know I think you know even as, as somebody who you know as, as a kid for me you now interestingly I had a I had a really close friend that I would say you know as you're as you're framing that and saying that I was like oh yeah I, I probably had you know what if I were hearing some of the the stuff like, if some of the stuff was on TV that's on TV today and I was watching that as a kid, I would have been like, oh, man, maybe I feel that way about my best friend. Like, I want to be near... Like, we would, like, you know, just have this this closeness that... And I, don't, I actually don't think there's anything inappropriate about it at all. I think it was, it was just a genuine closeness of friends. But, you know, was there kind of, like, a, an attractive piece to, like, you know, where wanted to be near each other yeah sure you know absolutely um where i really relate with like the the temptation you know piece was was especially like toward women you know and for me you know there were yeah there were feelings urges stuff like that that were there and then like you were saying like choices of what do i do with that and so often um you know did things that really ashamed of you know with with those urges. Um, and then in other moments, you know, had feelings that, w- that I, there was no negative. It's just like, Oh, I'm, I'm just attracted to this person. Um, and then later on in life, um, I mean, I remember this moment where I just was like, I just don't understand women. <laughs> and I remember talking to another man and just saying, I just don't, I don't understand them. I don't understand how they think I don't, like dealing with this and th- that was like a, a statement of frustration but then I remember reading something from Rosaria Butterfield where she said like look for me this wasn't just this like oh this real like sexual thing it had a lot to do with just like I understand women and I like them and I enjoy their company and um, you know it wasn't because I guess she had some Christian woman come up to her and say a really cheesy Christian thing which was do I cause you to stumble? Right, right, and right. And Rosaria said, oh, please, like, you know, don't flatter yourself. It's not... <laughs> <laughs> but she she said, my my nearness that, that I experienced as a lesbian, it wasn't because... 
it wasn't that. Right. It was it was a deep connection of the heart that I still share with women today that I you know, it's not just this like purely sexual thing. It's some sure. You know, anyway, I you know, when I think of that, I'm like, "Oh man, I yeah. I mean, how many people must, like obviously would feel those kind of connections to people that they understand. But then part of part of what I see in the image of God is like unity of diverse parts, like the Trinity, mm-hmm. different persons brought together and unified. And that's hard, like in a human experience to mm-hmm. live that out is, is hard and complicated. And I wouldn't expect it to make a lot of sense and just be easy. Right. And I experienced that in my marriage to my wife is that we are two very different persons, you know, unified and it's hard. Right. You know, it's, I don't always understand her. <laughs> right. We, our bodies work different. Our minds work different. Uh, but there's something beautiful in laying down who I am for her. And I still can't, you know, I, when I think about why, why do I do that? You know, it seems to me that it's kind of mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why would I sign up for that? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. We, there's something about it that's divine. Right. Yeah, Definitely. It is. Yeah. And, yeah. So how do you, um, so when you're, you're sharing that with your church, I, I mean, I really like what you're saying that this, so when you're sharing things with them, you're speaking of creation, you're speaking of Galatians, but you're not just, you're not just laying down facts. Right. It's right. like, I feel these things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I think it, I mean, for some, you know, one, it's, it gives us freedom um, because this is a story I could keep secret, and it's actually a story where I could, if I kept secret, could nur- I could nurture and plan and think about and form yeah. inappropriate intimacies with other men right. because it's not out there, right? right? And, sure. and use that. Um, the the other thing, you know, while you were talking, I, I had a, a, just a couple thoughts. One, yeah. me giving that story gives people freedom to have their own stories. Yeah, Let's put them out there. Um, it helps me redefine like what how a community is going to operate yeah because I think like in the church a lot of times what happens is we have the the distortion or you know of our who we are yeah but we're not allowed to talk about that we're not allowed to struggle with it it's not allowed just to be out there yeah like it has to be well that's not the way that's supposed to be we can't no it is the way it is how we're going to respond and and with the distracting sins you know the ones that are you know the original sin, and not the right. original, it's the actual sins that we can participate in. A lot of times we're behavioral. Yeah. And, and I think that's, we're not priestly. Right. And so and we're not approaching, like, you know, pornography from a priestly position. I mean, and, and I, you know, I was tell, I told our church on Sunday, I have never heard Jesus, nor have I seen in the New Testament where Jesus says, or, or any of the apostles say, that if you are in Christ, you are a prophet. He does say that you're priestly prophets. Yeah, I mean, there are prophets, uh, prophetic gifts in the priesthood. But priests bind up wounds, prophets point at people and tell them this is bad. And we've become very prophetic in the way we approach. So it produces shame. We participate in pornography, and we say bad, bad. You're not in the way of God. Instead of when you're a priest, you begin to approach life completely different. You're wounded, they're wounded. A binding up needs to happen, a healing, a being at the foot of the cross. Our approach changes. Hmm. 
And so then when we come to these secret sins that we nurture, we can repent. We can speak them out loud, and we right. can begin that process of talking, confessing, and praying over each other. Absolutely. But, you know, I think so those are... That's which a, that's which is big. very different than drawing lines in the sand or whatever, you know, which, which is what I was sensing about, like, the race conversation, for instance, you know, was man, there's a lot of yelling and shaming. Yeah. And, but not a lot of, of people feeling safe to say, like, okay, I might, maybe I'm racist. I, I have those feelings and being safe yeah. to say it, right? Because um, that's, where, that's where change comes. That's where healing comes. You're right. Yeah. It's a, and, and racism is a good example. That, like, the, the distortion is not just a genetic thing. No. Like you grow up in that, then yeah. it's a distortion. You didn't choose it as a little yeah. kid. You're just you're told and you're told and you're told and your the power structure tells you and it tells yeah. you and then that well you have to undo that. But you can't just be like oh so today I'm I'm not a racist because I've undone my racism. Yeah. No, no you have to speak it and say this is I'm messed up. I don't even know how I'm a racist. You have to help me. Right. I, and I, you might go to your grave still sort of being a racist. Yes. But but if you bring it out into light, it's going to have way less of a hold on you than it did before. Right. And it becomes a story, right? I mean, the priesthood, we, we tell how we move out of the darkness into the glorious light. That's right. what a priest does. Yeah. You know, is... Well, and that's and that's where you need the gospel, too, because um, outside of the gospel, you got to have it right. Right. you got to have it right. Um, and then... but. Within the gospel, you can you can admit no, I don't, I don't understand my I don't understand my sexuality. It's all, I, it's a confusing thing to me. I don't know what to do with it. Right. I, I don't, I don't love people the way I should, whether it's across race or gender or anything else. Um, but the interesting thing is, without without God, you can't call those things sin. Right. And without calling them sin, you can't be a recipient of mercy and grace. Right. Um, and so the answer isn't just to say everything's fine. Right. And that's that, that's such a... I, I just don't know any other way, any other path offered that brings so much conviction and peace at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I mean, I for me, like Psalm 51 yeah. is like... If there ever is the like reform slash dispensational psalm <laughs> in existence, that's it. Because he says, "Here's what you have to do. Like I can tell you why I'm broken, but I can do nothing about my brokenness. So yeah. if you do something about my brokenness, then I will tell everybody what you did." So yeah. his volition is, I can respond. Like I can tell what you've done to me, yeah. and I can say that I, I'm broken. Like, yeah. and I think you know that's. Where I am is that yes, my own my only choice in my broken will, and my broken ability to choose is to say that I'm broken. Like I yeah. can I can acknowledge that, but I can do nothing about it yeah. without the Holy Spirit yeah. and without God cleaning me. But if He does something, I can choose to say something. Yeah, and I think that's a powerful like way of understanding who we are because yeah. it takes a lot of the burden off of me. I mean. <clears throat> like to fix myself and I think there's a strong part of that built into Christian culture yeah it's pretty it's pretty antithetical to the gospel and it's very present and if man yeah that you're right it's that that is one of the the saddest things is how little the gospel is believed right within what we would call Christian culture 
Yeah. And it's hard because yeah. we like our feelings. I mean, our feelings uh, are this delicate part of who we are, but it's not really who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They tell us who we are, but they don't. Yeah. And we, but we think they do, and that's where it's hard. It's, How confusing is that? Yeah, it is very confusing. Because <laughs> we have to stand in truth. We have to say, no, this is who I am in Christ. Yeah. Regardless of what my experience is, how I feel about me, and this, and that's the humbling thing. I mean, that's and that's what I think is also missing in, in so much of this dialogue on either end of the spectrum. Again, like I, the people are just kind of like like bantering and yelling back and forth at each other. How could you do this? How could you be like this? Oh, unbelievable! Um, you know, and I, you know when I when I think about this this message of grace and this. You know, a God who's saying, I define you, and then, and the way I define you, you know, you're not going to, it's going to go against your deepest core desires, right? Right. Um, and, and the only way, you know, is, is by accepting everything from me. I have to be the one who defines you. I have to be the one that cleanses you. I have to be the one that, that changes you. Um, and so you don't, it's not you. You surrender all your all your control. Well, when I hear that, I go, who in the world is going to do that? And so when I see people on any side of this, any side of the aisle who don't do that, I understand. Mm-hmm. I don't know why in the world I'm here. Right. You know, like how I'm a pastor, I don't even get it. I, and I'm not, you know, same thing about believing in Jesus. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a mystery to me. Yeah. And so that's the, like when people don't, don't believe in Jesus or don't believe mm-hmm. in a God who defines us or don't understand how that works or are confused, that makes total, I understand. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't, these are not stupid people. Right. These are normal people. Right. Um, we're the fools. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I'm, But I think, I think being foolish is okay when it comes to receiving the grace of God. Yeah. Um, I just when you were talking, my favorite picture in the Matrix is you know when he, they drive up underneath the bridge and uh-huh. he's in the back seat of the car and they've got a gun on him and they want to take the bug out of his stomach yeah. and he's like, no way, I'm out of here. And he opens the door and she says, well, you've been down that road. And I always oh, feel like they, yeah. that's what the gospel is like: is that you're pointing a gun at somebody and saying, we'd like to take this bug out of your stomach. Yeah, and you're right. like, I don't think this is this makes absolutely no sense to me. Right. And then you want to go down that road, and you're like, well, but I know what it's like to be distorted. I know what it means to have no control of my own life. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'll try yeah. <laughs> like having you shoot me or take out the bug. Cause, yeah. And that's how like, I mean, how difficult the decision oh. is and how disruptive it all oh, is and how much it absolutely. makes sense. I mean, I think they captured like the gospel yeah. perfectly in that, that little scene. But. Yeah. Yeah, no, it... Um, right, it's... It's absolutely, I mean, who in the world would choose for themselves, yeah, to be, like in that in that scene, to be faced with such an unearthing, changing thing and not do things the way that you have done that. Like, that's terrifying, scary, strange, confusing, doesn't feel right. Um, I don't know. I just hope, I guess I would just say to friends, other pastors out there, like, have a lot of compassion, because the stuff you believe is really hard. To, for I mean, anybody that that doesn't believe it, they're not nuts. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> Definitely. Any uh, 
yeah, any final thoughts on either? Like, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious. I know some people from our churches listen and some of our friends, like anything you want to just encourage them as, as this, you know, stuff like Nashville statement and all these podcasts and all these articles are flying around just one, one or two things you'd say, like, I'd encourage you to think this way or do this. Or... <laughs> I feel like we're starting to sound like a radio program. Um, well, you know, it's, for me, I'm not sure in the sense that I don't know how many people listen to all those things or what their their intake is sure. in all these yeah. things. But I think one of the things that's on the news at this point is Houston and all of the flooding. And, and I, I guess my... I, I mean, I care deeply about the people in Houston, but yeah. not to be egocentric. And right. that India is in a mess. There's places oh, all over, yeah. like, this, and the storms... like. That's just one of the traumas, yeah. Oh, yeah. and and so I think there's there's yes help where God calls you to help. We should be helping, but we should also be mourning because this is this is just not the way it's supposed to Things be. Things are so not the way they're supposed and, to be. And that all we can do is cry out, God, when when is when are you going to stop? Yeah. Yes. Alright, that's Faith Over Breakfast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be back here next week. Have another biscuit, some coffee. Hopefully, Brian will be here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for following along. We appreciate you. See you next week. Is your mind sharp and your back strong? All your thoughts weak when men speak alone On the benefits of science and the common laws Do you succumb to king to bulldog you? Are you swayed by the hangman's news? Do you doubt the power of the life inside? Do you fail to wield the sword inside? When all shelters been
watchman's call Find you awake Have you shielded your skin from the cold and ice? Does the sun's fire still steal your strength? Like waves tossed to and fro and then suddenly laid low By an obliterated wind you've been destroyed And another man has stolen your place in time Stored in that warehouse where the record keeper keeps Each new one in his books Not a one in a thousand years Has even bothered to look Won't you stand up, stand up and